Yeah, as, as Quint was saying, my name is Pete, and uh, I'm one of the leaders here. And we're in a mini-series at the moment where the, the kind of brief was for each preacher just to bring a passage of personal encouragement to them to, uh, and, and to preach that to you guys and hopefully, you know, encourage you guys in the process. Now, this is actually quite a tough assignment for me because I actually find most of the Bible encouraging. So it actually is a whole bunch of extra work to go and think and, and, and pray and, and kind of land on, on something. But as I went through that process, um, I landed here that I'd like to preach on the person and work of Jesus. Because the Christian faith, first and foremost, is not about rules or a way of life or even being a nice human being. It is about those things kind of in a secondary nature, but at the center of the center, the Christian faith is about a person, a real person who actually lived in history, Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus? So I've got some of my favorite quotes here, and I just you know, encourage you guys to let these quotes land on you with the force that they landed on me. Okay, so James Hefley said this. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. I think I'm within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Napoleon Bonaparte, of all people, said something similar. Listen to what he said. I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself and Caesar and Alexander should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the, the, the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. And then H.G. Wells said this. He said, I am an historian. I'm not a believer but I must confess as an historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very sense of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And so friends, I don't know where you're at in terms of reckoning with this person of Jesus Christ, but whatever you think of him, you can't ignore him. He is the central figure of history bar none. I mean, what year are we in right now? We're in 2020, and I know 2020 is becoming a bit of a, almost like a swear word, right? I want to forget this year as quickly as possible, but 2020 is the year that we're in. 2020 what? Years since the birth of Jesus. Exactly. This is how we mark time. Next month, we're going to stop what we're doing, and a lot of the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world is going to stop what they're doing for Christmas, which marks what? Again, the birth of Jesus. No one else has managed anything like this, right? To take over the very calendar that we use to mark time. How do we explain this? How did he take over history to such an extent? And I think there are many ways to answer this question, but the one that is most central in my mind is this. It's this, that Jesus rose from the dead. And if this statement is true, 
This explains how Jesus has been able to stretch his influence over the centuries. And I want to argue today that what we think of the resurrection, what we think about the central claim of the Christian faith, must change our lives. It must. Either it's not true, and then we can ignore it and get on with our lives, or it is true, and then it demands all sorts of response from us. And so friends, I don't think thinking and talking about the resurrection is just for Easter. Someone has said that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and I think that's, that's right. But what I want to do now this morning is take a bit of an in-depth look at this central claim of the Christian faith. And then I'm going to try and back it up. Okay, so where we are going is to the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to be reading from chapter 15. And uh, I'm reading from the ESV. So if you're able to follow along in your own Bible or on your phone, please do so. Okay, this is God's Word. I'm starting at verse 3. This is what the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit say. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, skipping ahead to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Paul's really trying to make himself clear. And if Christ has not been raised, this is critical, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that um, you have told us that you raised Jesus from the dead and that he is alive, ruling and reigning today. And as we look at these weighty, profound, world-changing matters this morning, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts. Lord, I pray that these things would rest on us, not lightly, that we wouldn't uh, functionally kind of ignore them as we go through our our day-to-day lives, Lord, but this this would rest on us with with profound weights as you intended to, Lord. And so I pray that you would Give me clarity now. I pray that I would decrease and you would increase as, as you seek to make these things clear to us this morning. And so we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would now have your way in, uh, in, in bringing these truths to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, so what I want to do is to kind of summarize what Paul is saying here. What is the kind of big idea that Paul's trying to get across? Then I'm going to move to backing Paul's claims here up with some evidence. And that's where I hope that, you know, all of us will be like, I've been deeply encouraged by uh, these things. And then finally, ask ourselves, so what? What does this actually mean? What should I do if these things are indeed 
true. And I'm convinced that the clearer that we get about these things, the more stable and confident and bold we will be in our faith. Okay, so let's start with summarizing what Paul is trying to say here. And by the way, this is a, this is a super early summary of the, the central teachings of the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians is written in the early 50s AD. So we're talking probably 18, maybe 20 years after the central facts that are being outlined here. And Paul is saying that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, someone who was well-known at the time, a real person, he was put to death and he was buried, and that that event was witnessed by loads of people. Everyone was talking about it. And then he's claiming that Jesus went on to rise from the dead, and he appeared multiple times to all sorts of people, most of whom were still alive at the time of writing. And Paul then makes the case that this is actually something that was predicted in many places by the Old Testament, so this is not some kind of new idea that came out of the blue. But one thing that I want to stress, because I think we can falsely project back into the first century and assume, you know, the way people were back then, is that this was not an easy message at all to believe at that point in time. Ancient Greeks did not believe in bodies being resurrected. Ancient Greeks actually believed that matter was corrupt and even evil, including the human body. Jews also would have had a massive problem with this. For one thing, they had a very strict monotheism, and so for them the idea that God could or would or would want to take on human flesh was a crazy idea. And that's why Paul, earlier in the same book of 1 Corinthians, in in, in chapter 1, he says that this gospel is foolishness. It's utter foolishness to the surrounding culture. And so we need to beware, you know, falling into the trap of thinking, oh, back then, you know, the guys in the first century, they were unthinking simpletons who would easily have believed all of that, this, this stuff. Us moderns, on the other hand, are very different. No, 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 no. These guys actually, this culture would have been one of the last on earth that would have easily you know, taken in these claims. Paul then goes on to press his case, and he says that if bodies can't be raised, then Jesus, who was a man, could not have been raised. And then we run into all sorts of problems. We've got no good news then, because the good news pivots around the reality that our sins have been forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus. But if Jesus wasn't raised, we have no confidence that God actually accepted this final sacrifice of his. And then we can only conclude that we've got an outstanding debt with God that we could never pay. Of course, we could never pay. And that's why he concludes, then we are still in our sins. So do you see how Paul's logic works? No resurrection, no forgiveness of sins, no good news. And on top of this, Paul is saying, that's not the only problem. The other problem is that we, all, all all the Christian preachers at the time, are running a deceptive scam. Because they are claiming that this is at the heart of what their message is. But they're lying if resurrection didn't happen. And on top of that, what is the point of all the suffering that everyone's going through if all of this is just a lie? This only makes sense. All the events at the time and the circumstances at the time, Paul is trying to argue, only make sense if Jesus truly was raised from the dead. And so the same reckoning needs to be done by us today. Did these things actually really happen? Again, if not, we can ignore it. Get on with our lives. 
But if they truly did happen, there's no rational response except to make Jesus the center of our lives. And so the question that we want to ask ourselves now is, did, did these things happen? How can we be sure? What evidence is there for the claims that Paul is making here? I want to unpack this under a few headings. So let's firstly take a look at some non-Christian accounts. Okay? What were the people at the time who weren't believers saying about these matters? And what can we conclude from that? Then take a bit of a look at the evidence from what the Christians themselves were saying. And then finally, take a look at some modern theories. So modern skeptics today have come up with their own set of possible explanations trying to explain away the resurrection. And what I'm going to try to do there is just show you how, in my, in my view, none of those theories really hold much water. Okay, so non-Christian accounts. What do those at the time outside looking in have to say about these things? So there, there, there are actually many different witnesses, but I'm just, for the sake of time today, just going to scratch the surface and take a look at one guy, Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman senator who wrote a very well-regarded history of the Roman Empire. It's still studied today in universities. Um, no one's questioning its reliability or authenticity. And uh, Tacitus is born in the early 50s. He's writing now in around 80 AD, and he's looking back at that infamous fire that happened in Rome that Nero, yeah, in, in, at, the, at the time of Nero, that some people were saying Nero had, had started. Okay, so this is what Tacitus has to say. He says, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor... And sacrifices to the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the fire was the result of an order. In other words, people were spreading a rumor that Nero had actually ordered this fire to start. Okay. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Okay. So the first thing that I want to note here is that already 30 years after the crucifixion, We've got the surrounding culture referring to these guys as Christians. Christians means basically little Christ. So there's already an awareness that this religion is a bunch of people who are trying to follow in the footsteps of Christ. They, they have made Christ the center of their religion. You know? So this is something that is recognized by the outsiders. Tacitus goes on and he says this, Christus, that's Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that's crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate's, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all hideous and shameful things from every part of the world find their sense and become popular. Uh, real patriots, this guy. Okay, but... Here again, we've got an external source saying that Christ suffered the extreme penalty. He was crucified during the reign of Tiberius. We know when Tiberius was emperor. That was between 14 and 37 AD. And also while Pontius Pilate was the procurator, we know when that was, that was between 26 and 36 AD. So external source saying, backing up completely what the New Testament claims about when and how Jesus was killed. Okay, and then finally, just the last part of the quote that I want to share with you, this is perhaps the most important part. He goes on to say, Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of setting fire to the city as of hatred against mankind. Let's see what the prevailing view of Christianity was. 
Mockery of every sort was added to their debts. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. It's pretty shocking stuff, right? And I think it's maybe just worth kind of pausing and thinking to ourselves, you know, what, what bothers me today? You know, we've, we so, we've, most of us are so bugged by this, this year that we're facing at the moment, thinking that it's just such a disaster. I mean, just look at what it was like to be a believer in the year 64 AD. I mean, how would you like to die? Would you like to be crucified? Would you like to be torn apart by wild beasts? Would you like to be set on fire? You know, the agony of choice. You know, can I get back to you on that one? But did you see what Tassus said? He said, an immense multitude of believers were in Rome, which, by the way, is nearly 4,000 kilometers from Jerusalem, just 30 years after the crucifixion. And I want to ask you guys this morning, I mean, this is the key question. How do you explain such an immense multitude, so widely dispersed, when it was so incredibly costly if the resurrection didn't truly happen? I really think, you know, you almost have to come up with a miracle even more profound to explain how that even makes sense. You know, I really think that the resurrection itself has an explanatory power that then makes sense of all this stuff immediately in a way that nothing else does. Okay, and I'd encourage you guys, you know, go and explore. Tacitus is not the only external witness to what was going on at the time but it certainly is consistent with the data in the New Testament. Let's, let's move on to the Christian kind of witness to this. So what, what do we find there? So firstly, what we find is that every single book of the New Testament either speaks explicitly about the resurrection or assumes that Jesus is alive, every single one. So for example, the book that I just read from earlier, 1 Corinthians, this book was written, as I said already, around AD 50. This is super close to the events, within 20 years. And that's how Paul's able to say that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive, right? They're still alive because this is seriously close to the, the facts. And I guess the implication is, remember this, this culture at the time was a culture that really majored on like eyewitness testimony. This is before, you know, most people were literate or had, you know, the ability to write stuff down, certainly before video cameras, etc. So eyewitness testimony was everything. And Paul is, again, he's implying, go and speak to these witnesses. There are loads of them, loads of them still alive. And they will tell you. They will tell you that they spoke to him, they saw him. He showed them his, he showed them his scars. Go look at their lives. Their lives have been turned upside down. And don't you see, friends, that a document like this, 1 Corinthians, in a culture like that where eyewitness testimony is everything, it does not come down to us in the form that it has now, unscathed with its reputation intact, if this wasn't able to check out the time. Just a few other things I'd like to highlight. Things that I think would never have been invented if you know, the stuff was just being made up. The first thing that never would have been invented is a resurrection to start with. 
Here's what N.T. Wright says. Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false, or at least was assumed to be false. Many believed that the dead were non-existent. Outside Judaism, no one believed in the resurrection, and even inside there was confusion about it. And you see this quite often, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are having a big debate around, you know, what's going to happen after we die. It's massive confusion in Judaism. So explain this one to me. How, okay, you're now fabricating a set of events, trying to get a new religion off the ground, and at the center of this new religion, you put a crucifixion, which is the most shameful thing imaginable at the time, and a resurrection, which is the most foolish and, and laughable thing. Why? Why would you do that? Another thing I think would, would probably not be invented is the, the, the beginning kind of testimony of, of the first people who witnessed the, the resurrection. We see slight differences in their accounts. And many skeptics will kind of go, you know, you see, here's the problem. There are differences in their accounts. So, for example, um, one of the Gospels reports seeing an angel and the other seeing two angels. Now, are those two statements contradictory? Well, let's just think about this for a second. If there were two angels, did you see an angel? Yeah, I mean, you saw an angel. It's just, you know, like the way you reported it and you, you recollected it. You just made there was an angel there. Um, however, if you're making this kind of thing up, I think that it's far more probable that what you're then going to do after the fact is try to harmonize all these little discrepancies. However, if these things are being reported just as eyewitness testimony, you're going to write them down as, as reported. Okay, another one. Please don't shoot the messenger here. But in the first century, you would never invent women as being the first witnesses to the resurrection. Okay, again, don't it's another reason to be grateful that we live today and not back then. But back then, women were not regarded as reliable witnesses. So here's this one very offensive quote that I dug up around women not testifying in court. said, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the inconstancy and presumption of their sex. Okay. Shocking stuff, I know. But again, we have to ask ourselves the question, in that kind of very chauvinistic culture, would you invent women being the first ones to arrive at the tomb on that morning? Doesn't seem likely. And finally, another thing that, that seems very unlikely would be invented is we have stories of doubts cropping up all over the place after the, the, the resurrection. So Matthew's gospel, four verses before the end of his gospel, it says, some doubted. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then infamously, we've got doubting Thomas in the book of John. So again, if, you, if you're making this up and you want this to take root, surely you don't invent all this doubt happening. So why is all this doubt there? Well, I'll tell you the reason. All these guys have seen Jesus die. Dead people don't come back from the dead, right? Of course they doubted. So, the, you know, I th again, there's, there's, there's a lot more that we could go into, but even the Christian accounts, when you start kind of unpacking them a little bit, really points towards authenticity, truth, and, and the facts actually being reported as they happened rather than being made up. Okay, and then fi the final set of evidence I want to look at is there are a bunch of kind of modern theories that have been put forward on you know, why, why people believed that Jesus was raised but why he actually wasn't, what actually happened. So let me just outline these for you quickly. The first one is the swoon theory. And the swoon theory, I mean, this... 
this one really doesn't hold much water for me, basically says that Jesus did not really actually die on the cross. So he was crucified, but, and he nearly died, but he didn't quite die. And, uh, you know, then he made some kind of pretty, pretty incredible recovery a few days later for someone who had uh, faced all of that. And I guess, you know, this is almost like, like the superhero theory. It kind of almost assumes that Jesus wasn't a real man. And that's why he was able to kind of somehow miraculously come through this without, without dying. There are loads of problems with this theory. I think the first one is that Romans knew what they were doing with crucifixion. I mean, they, they had perfected this art. And it was said that if you, didn't get, if you didn't actually fulfill your duty as the executioner on the day, you yourself would be crucified as punishment. The other problem with this theory is how do you explain the transformation of the disciples? How do you explain the spread of Christianity if all they were you know, seeing was, was a guy who hadn't actually died but just made a recovery? It doesn't make sense. And, and how do you explain the stone getting rolled away by a 95% dead guy? Then you've got the conspiracy theory. Okay? And, and this one basically says that all the disciples kind of secretly got together and conspired to make this up. I don't know if have you read have you read the Gospels? <laughs> These guys are a bunch of morons. They, they, they couldn't have organized a party in a brewery. And so, I mean, I really don't think this holds water just based on the kind of character of these guys. But all that would have need would would have been needed to squash a conspiracy like that was, you know, present the body of Jesus, the, the corpse of Jesus, which the enemies of Jesus would have been highly motivated to do, right? And again, what explains the, the boldness of the disciples willing to suffer and die for this conspiracy that they've hatched? Doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Then you've got the myth theory, which basically says that, you know, Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, but, you know, we're all prone to kind of over time embellish things and, you know, start telling stories that are a little bit stretched compared to what actually happened. But C.S. Lewis points out that, you know, anyone who knows how to read myth and then goes and reads the Gospels knows that the Gospels are nothing like myth. They read much more like, you know, first-hand eyewitness account. And on top of that, there's no record ever of any myth rising up within less than 30 years of the central character of the myth having died. Okay, so that's also a fairly weak theory. And then finally, you've got the Mass hallucination theory. I like to call this the, the, the LSD theory. It's, it's almost like rave culture came to the first century, 2,000 years before it actually rose up. But this, friends, this makes no, no sense. Like, group hallucinations are not known to, to happen. And even if we were to grant that, okay, maybe that's possible, all we'd be able to grant is, okay, that, that happened for a few seconds, maybe for a few minutes. But what we have in terms of eyewitness testimony here is that Jesus appeared over 40 days to all sorts of groups. There's emphasis on him touching and eating and conversing and recalling past events. And you see him appearing all over the place in Judea, Galilee, in the town, in the country, indoors, outdoors, in the morning, in the evening, to one person, a few people, 500 people, sitting, standing, walking, eating. None of that gels with 
the hallucination theory. And friends, that's, that's basically it. That, this is what people have come up with, apart from the other final kind of, you know, explanation, which is that Jesus never existed, which honestly I think just needs to be treated with contempt. You know, there's far, 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 far more evidence for the fact that Jesus existed than for almost any other historical figure in human history. And so my conclusion, friends, and, and the conclusion of many others who have looked into this, including many very smart people that have gone looking for evidence to try to disprove the resurrection. The conclusion is that actually the evidence and the facts that best fit the data are that Jesus really was raised from the dead. Nothing else actually manages to have the explanatory power to, to help us understand how this religion got off the ground in the way that it did, when it was making these claims at the very center of the center. I thought, you know, to, to me, this stuff is deeply encouraging. The more you kind of look into it and you kind of go, it's not like I just need to have faith, like this blind faith that rests in midair. It's faith working with reason and logic and evidence. To me, that's deeply encouraging. So the question we have to ask ourselves now is, what, what do we do with this? So friends, if, I first want to start with you. If you're still exploring the claims, and teaching, the claims and teachings of Jesus. The one thing that I want you to take away today is that maybe these things are true. Maybe there really is evidence for the claims of the Christian faith. Maybe Jesus really is alive and there is no other credible alternative because there, there is no other explanation that can kind of really explain how, how Christianity took off in such an incredible way in, that for, in the first century and then for the next 2,000 years continued to, to grow as it has. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but the Christian faith is the only truly global faith today. Now, all the other faiths are, have, have real kind of geographic kind of centers. But the Christian faith, what you find is that roughly 20% of believers are found in North America, roughly 20% in South America, roughly 20% in Europe, roughly 20% in Africa, roughly 20% in Asia, in Australia. I mean, how do you explain that, that it's been so incredibly adaptable to every single culture and geographic region? But friends, also if that's you, if you are still exploring Jesus, I just want to say that this is not just an argument to your mind, it's also an argument to your heart. Well, what the Bible is saying, friends, is that he died for you. He died for you. He died for your sins. He came and stood in the gap out of this love that we can't comprehend for you. I want to be so bold as to say, if, if this is you, I believe that you know that you've got guilt that you carry around and you don't know what to do with. And you've got shame that you also don't know, you also don't know what to do with. And I want to also say that I believe that you know that the real God exists. That's what Romans 1 says. <clears throat> that everyone in some mysterious way, believes in the true and living God, but we tend to suppress that truth. Romans 4 says that he was raised for your justification. And that means to, in the court, sitting there as the judge, in that court, he was raised for you to be declared not guilty. Your guilt sorted and paid for. Friends, there's no price to pay for this. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. 
All you have to do is say, I've had enough of my old life. I've had enough of trying to do this on my own. I trust you, Jesus. Save me. And I hope that you can see, you know, the, the claim of the resurrection here leaves no fence to sit on. There's not an option. Either this is a lie and you can happily ignore it. You can put hashtag YOLO, you only live once, on your Instagram profile, and then you can go and eat and drink and be merry. For tomorrow we die, we just atoms, clusters of souls coming from nowhere, going nowhere. All the stuff is true. And the implication then is that Jesus is the king of the universe. And the implication for your life is that you need to invite him in to be king of your life. There's no middle ground. He didn't mean to leave that open to you. And then, friends, if you are already a Christ follower, aren't you seriously challenged by what Paul says at the end of our passage here? Where he says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Oh, this challenged me as I was meditating on this this week. Is that what, is that what people say about me as they look at my life? Is that what people say about you? Do people look at your life and wonder why do you make the choices that you make with your time and your money and your priorities? People asking, why is it that your marriage and your parenting look so different? Why is it that you act so differently at work? Why is it that you seem to have your identity in a place completely different to where they are getting their identity? Or do you just blend in? Paul is pushing us to take stock and to say that others should think that my choices are crazy unless Jesus has been raised and there's a new world coming that makes this world look like nothing in comparison. That's what happened in the Apostle Paul's life. His, his life seems to be one calamity after the other, right? Shipwreck, prison, he's beaten to within an inch of his life multiple times. He's misrepresented. He's brought up on false charges. He's abandoned by his friends. And yet nothing, nothing can beat him down. Nothing can discourage him. And he presses on with joy. Why? How? What happened? The answer is that Paul met the resurrected Christ. And from that point onwards, he was a completely changed man. And there became one driving passion to his life, to live for Jesus and to live for others regardless of the cost. Because he was saved and because he was loved and because he recognized that this resurrected Jesus was a prototype of what he was going to become. One of my favorite parts of the Bible is just later on in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus is the first fruits, and Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits. You know what that means? It's basically, this is what it's going to look like for all of us. It's just the first fruits on the, on the branch, and the full fruit is going to be all of us one day, being given exactly the same, exactly the same kind of resurrection body that Jesus himself was given. Can you think of better news than that? Everything that bugs us now, remaining sin and sickness and challenge and disappointment and obviously ultimately death, all of those things banished, done away with, canceled, forever. And we can be confident because we've taken a look that Jesus' resurrection actually makes sense. And so friends, do we, do we actually believe these things? Like, with utter certainty. I hope that I've helped you this morning 
see that these things are reasonable and rational and based on the evidence. And that you're able to leave now today with fresh steel in your spine and a fresh spring in your step, knowing that He is alive. And because He lives, you will too, in the most full and lasting and incredible way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you truly did raise Jesus from the dead. Thank you that that shows that you have accepted the sacrifice that we can't even imagine. That Jesus came to this earth, humbled himself, lived in obscurity, lived in relative poverty, was misunderstood, was hated by many, and then was prepared to love us so completely that he went and stood in the gap and he put his body on the line and suffered your wrath in our place. And that because you then raised him from the dead, you've you've shown the entire universe. It's finished. It's complete. I accept this. The substitution is real. And all we have to do now in response, Lord, is to say, yes, God. Yes, I believe you. I trust you. I'm with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much that there's nothing that we can do. There's no ways that we could earn this. There's certainly no ways that we could ever deserve this. But all we need to do is have faith in you and say thank you. It's a gift. It's a gift from the lavish hands of the most generous God that could ever be imagined. The only true God. And so we pray all these things again today in Jesus' name. Amen.